Spencer Malpin, the team of brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Tony Blangino. If Tony Blangino's name is familiar to you, uh, it's perhaps because you're familiar with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers front office from uh, something like five to ten years ago. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the Seattle Mariners office from more recently than that. Or perhaps it's because you read Jeff Baker's piece in the Seattle Times from this past weekend in uh, which Blangino uh, was one of a number of former Mariners employees quoted as uh, suggesting that the Mariners front office as it is currently positioned uh, is something less than ideal uh, so far as human relations uh, and relationships are concerned. In any case, in what follows, there is a conversation with Tony Blangino that occurs the beginning part of it, because I think it's unavoidable, the beginning part of it does it does at some level concern uh, that mess that seems to have uh, come about in in Seattle uh, and, and uh, Blangino Tony uh, Tony I said his name Blangino comma Tony he he speaks to that situation uh, but because I'm not a sort of person who's qualified me Carson Stooley I'm not qualified to inspect. Uh, with any sort of expertise, those kinds of situations, we don't dwell on it at any sort, any sort of length. Maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's ten minutes. I don't know. You have to go check the tape. I don't know. Anyways, after that, we also we discuss uh, some other things too. For example, international prospects that are not based in Latin America. What are they like? That's one of the things uh, about which we discuss. Also, also honestly, uh, Tony Blangino's father, Franco Blangino, who uh, I've only known him for maybe. Um, an hour of my life, two hours of my life, uh, but he's a he's a credit to Italians. He's a credit to senior citizens, and uh, we we talk about him a little bit. It's a conversation with Tony Blangino, presently uh, of late a Fangraphs author. Uh, at other points, a member of the Seattle Mariners and Milwaukee Brewers for an office. It's a conversation with Blangino. It's Fangraphs audio. If I didn't say that, begins right now. I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. You, I'm, uh, um, I'm reaching you, I believe, in uh, somewhere in Wisconsin. Yes, in the uh, the Great White North, where we're uh, we look like a Christmas card right now. Are you uh, are you in the Milwaukee area? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, Waukesha, about a half a mile to the southeast. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, of course, Southwest, you know. I've, excuse me. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, of course, I uh, have been. Of late, in the uh, not in the greater Milwaukee area per se, but in the, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. I'm not right now. You're in uh, Paris, France, from what I understand. Yeah, that's exactly accurate. It's precisely. We're doing we're doing the international thing today. Yeah, this uh, uh, the podcasts have become international. I should mention uh, to that point, um, if I uh, disappear all of a sudden, uh, it's because that's the uh, it's French internet at work. Okay. Well, yeah. I will keep that in mind. Yeah. And I guess if, if, if and people should understand if we suddenly start talking about the World Cup draw, that you know, hey, that's what happens in these international podcasts. That's right. Yeah. You're dealing with an international person. That's right. You're a man, a man of intrigue. Yeah. Um. Uh. So you've had a pretty uneventful week, it seems like. Yeah, relatively, <laughs> relatively speaking, sure. Yeah. Um, you, uh, uh, of course, uh, your name was invoked. I'm not going to talk about this at length because 
I don't know how to talk about it at length. But your name, <laughs> um, your name was invoked uh, in an article that was a sort of larger article about the the inner workings, I guess, of the Seattle Mariners front office um, uh, now, and I guess in the recent present, right? The, you know, the recent uh, the recent past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my only real question about it is because there's if people want to read it, they can read Jeff Baker's article and uh, they can um, you know form their own conclusions, whatever. And uh, again, I'm not really qualified to probe so far as this sort of thing is concerned. However, here is like a practical question mm-hmm. um, because you're a man, and from what I could tell, um, you're a man who uses reason. Um, mm-hmm. th- there are signs to suggest that this is. Uh, even part of your job description over the last, what, five to ten years or something like that? Mm-hmm. Reasonable yep. man. You obvi- yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you obviously had to make, um, you know, I don't know, because, again, I'm not anything like a real journalist, so I don't know what happens. But I assume that at some point uh, Jeff Baker or someone of the Seattle Times says uh, we're writing this story and um, we're looking for comments. Right. And I would assume at some point you, Tony Bongino, a, a former assistant GM of uh, Seattle Mariners have to weigh the pros and cons of making comments like that. Yep, and it's an extremely, extremely hard decision, which I flip-flopped and went back and forth on for such a long period of time. Right, and so I, I guess, I mean, and again, tell me to go shove it anytime you want. No, uh, not, I, 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 won't, I won't unless you, I absolutely have to. Okay. I can't imagine happening with such a man of international intrigue. Yeah, okay. So what... what what are the sort of things? What are the sort of things you're considering, and why ultimately do you say, do you say, yeah, uh, this is something I want to do? Well, you know, and I'll even take it a step farther back. I mean, it's what was going on in Seattle with me was going on for a long period of time. So you could back this decision process up um, well before when this article came out. Um, I'm not the only person who's had trouble with Jack. Um, as a matter of fact. I would say I'm the last person in that original front office who had this kind of trouble with Jack. Um, and I dealt with it man-to-man, person-to-person, um, you know, kept within the chain of command, kept every I – mean, when, when this came out, with, when it initially came out with me internally, people were stunned that I was having a problem with Jack because I always appeared to be in lockstep, always appeared to be – you know, it was Jack and Tony, Tony and Jack, Jack and Tony. And I was dealing with this the way I've been raised to deal with it, like a man, through the chain of command, and that obviously did not work. Um, so you, you go through internal measures to try to, to, to address a situation like this. And, you know, people internally know about Jack, but at the end of the day, it's, it's he's the GM. And, you know, he's the, he's the guy, and I'm much more disposable than the general manager is. So there are tough decisions being made two, two, three years ago, long before it got to the point where a journalist is calling me, asking me for, for comments for a story. Um, ultimately, yes, you want to stay employed. Yes, you want to continue uh, to work in baseball. And I believe that I will continue to work in baseball. But obviously, I have to consider the risk, the very obvious risk, that lots of people in the game are going to consider me radioactive because I said something against my employer. But if they talk to me and once they know more of the facts and just the tip of the iceberg's out there, 
um, they would be very their, – their tune would change dramatically. And if you've noticed, Jack's had an opportunity to respond in a prepared close statement, and he's had opportunities to respond on national media, um, you know, MLB Network and such, and he has not contradicted a, a thing that I've said because he can't because it's all true, and there's a lot more behind it. So I was in a situation where, okay, I'm, I'm not with the Mariners anymore, and the details of how that came to pass are a, a story unto itself. Um, and I'm out there looking for a job. And I'm, go, and I'm eminently qualified. I, you know, I have an analytical background. I have a scouting background. People might not know I scouted an area for three years and got seven guys to the big leagues from my area that was the northeast where not a lot of big leaguers come from. Um, I was an assistant scouting director. I've done tons of pro scouting on top of all the analytical stuff I've done. So I should be eminently employable. Well, guess what? I'm, you know, I'm out there looking for jobs, and I'm not getting phone calls. I'm not getting uh, return calls. I'm not getting return emails, nearly as many as I should. I, I go after a job that I'm way, way overqualified for just because I liked the, the, the club. I like where they're going. I liked, you know, the people there. So I figured, what the heck, let me take this, let me go for this job that I'm way overqualified for just to get with an organization that I respect. And initially they were excited to hear, to, to hear from me. And it, and it sounded like things were going were gonna to go really well. And then all of a sudden, nothing. So, you know, I'm not going to make any direct accusations because I don't have any direct proof. But all of a sudden there's a force out there that's working against me getting another job. Is that coming from Seattle? Like I said, I don't have, I don't have any smoking gun. But, you know, at this point, all I have is, is the truth. And I have to put my name on that. If I am going to just be anonymous and stick behind anonymous quotes, then, you know, I'm being cowardly. So I figure, yeah, there's a risk. There's a, you know, a sizable short-term risk. But I'm, on, I'm in the right. I have the truth on my side. And I'm going to put my name on it and let the chips fall where they may. And I, I can look in the mirror. I can sleep at night. And I'm I'm very very content with where things are at this point in time. Well, let me let me ask you a question, and it, I mean it partially has to do with this, but it it sort of uh, dovetails with uh, you know sort of uh, how just personal conduct generally. And it's this: um, I'm a fan of the um, uh, the Stoic philosophers, be it uh, Marcus Aurelius or before him Epictetus, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Stoic philosophers, and I, I'm not necessarily I agree with them. I enjoy the work of. They, they, have sort of a, a central point to the Stoics, right? Is that uh, a person conducts himself as best he can with the knowledge that there are going to be outside forces that will that, that will be pulling him in different directions, right? Definitely, but, yes. Yeah, and but you know, Marcus Aurelius says, Epictetus says, as long as you conduct your own affairs the way they they should be, then you could be happy. Now, obviously, that's an excellent. In theory, um, like anything, though, the difficulty comes in applying it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I feel uh, – I mean this – so I have actually been uh, – I've benefited the other direction. I don't really – I'm not really qualified for my job, um, and I don't understand why I have it. <laughs> um, but it's just – it was just dumb luck. Um, I mean it's just you know luck to some degree, and it happens – you know, I mean you obviously know Dave Cameron to some degree. Uh, David Appleman uh, is like – a is an excellent employ, uh, employer, and um, I don't really understand why I've benefited in that way. But even still, then Marcus Aurelius would say, "Well, 
you have to just, again, focus on your own affairs because things could churn sour in a moment's notice. And so I guess I'm wondering the fact that, I mean, this is only your latest experience in life. You had a bunch. If you have generally learned anything or you could teach a, a young dummy like me anything about the – what you know about the difference between sort of or, – or even if the if even if the Stoics are right, if, if it's possible to have sort of like a personal and contained sense of of happiness despite the fact that there might be, you know – um, there might be noise and difficulty around you. Well, you know what? I didn't know how philosophical this was going to get, but I'll I'll, I'll dive in with you. Let's um, do it. I, I mean, I've always been a firm believer. I mean, I think one of the most important things you can do in life is realize your own irrelevance. <laughs> um, I mean, I love to watch any of these shows on history or history two about the universe and things like that, and just. It gives me this peace, you know, knowing that I think one of the biggest failings of of people and just humanity in the the last century is thinking they're all that. And that, you know, there's so many people have no knowledge about their forefathers or the the expanse of the world, the universe, and, you know, what goes on in other parts of the world. All they know is the Kardashians. And... I've I've always been very increasingly comfortable. And this experience has given me the time to reflect. It's given me the time with my family, with the people who who truly love me and truly care about me, and has really given me a lot of perspective about, you know, my my you know, the the Earth is billions of years old, and I'm going to be around if I'm lucky for about 85% of a century, and no matter what I accomplish, you know. All I'm going to leave is who I leave behind and some memories. And I'm, I'm good with that. I'm content with that. I, you know, to me, it's just so important to be wake, to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and like what you see. And wake up in the morning after getting a good night's sleep because, you know, you're not being torn apart by something. Um, and yeah, in, in how the world judges success, this has put a lot of strain on me, but and how I really internally judge success, it hasn't. It's given me a much. It's given me a lot more time to think. It's given me a lot more time to, you know, kind of, you know, develop myself as a person, not just as a, a front office. I and mean, so many people define themselves by what they do rather than who they are. I mean, you've probably been to like you know, parties and get-togethers and whatever. And the first person somebody comes over and asks you is, what do you do? And, you know, it's like, oh, no, here we go again. <laughs> and it, it's, it, it, I've, it, this this time has really given me a lot more, you know, time to develop. And I, and I work on baseball every day. I mean, the, the entire period where things were falling apart with the Mariners and I'm back here in Wisconsin, you know, I didn't mail it in. I didn't suddenly go on my, my world tour or anything like that. I'm here trying. I mean, baseball's what I do. It's what I've done since I was eight years old. I mean, you know, every spare minute of my time just happens to be going. I mean, I used to read the baseball encyclopedia when I was a little kid, literally read it. And it, it's what I do. I mean, I, I, I'm in a, in a baseball simulation league with some friends back home in New Jersey that we've had going on for a long, long time. And, you know, through everything, you know, I, I moved to Seattle. I stayed in the damn league. It's just something that gives me comfort, gives me peace. And you know what? You play, we're actually replaying baseball history. And I think we're in 19, uh, what, we're in 1980 now. 
and the league started in like 1904. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a great game and it gives me a chance to, you know, kind of, you learn something. This, the great thing about this game is you learn something new every day. Every, ga- every game you see, every game you, you know, every time you sit down and, and, and ponder something in this game, you really do learn something new just about every day and see something you've never seen every time you watch a game. And, you know, I've found so much comfort in this game and, you know, it's where I want to make my living. If I can't, I'll be fine. I mean, yeah, finances will struggle. Yeah, finances are, finances are an issue right now. But that's, it, that's such a small piece of who you are. And, you know, it's, I'm fine regardless of whether my financial situation is fine. Do I want to have a future in baseball? You bet I do. Am I qualified to? You bet I am. Uh, will it happen? It's, I can only control what I can control. And, um, you know, I, all, all it takes is one other person to see it in me. Let me uh, let's let's ask uh, let me ask you about a, a more a contemporary philosopher, uh, and that's uh, that's Franco Blangino. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You you uh, happened to meet my father, didn't you, down in Arizona? I did. Yeah, we uh, yeah we had the opportunity to meet maybe uh, three years ago. You were talking at a Fangraphs event then, and uh, your father was there, and um, he's one of the more he's one of the more uh, spirited gentlemen that I've had, uh, and that's not even age adjusted. Um, yep. Certainly, age adjusted. Uh, yeah, he's he ranks. He's way up there. Uh, now, is he? Uh, is Franco still around? Franco's still around. Franco. Um, had, I guess he, he might have been having some health issues back the time you, you, you saw him. I'm not sure. He had um, he had um, a bone cancer surgery. Uh, about that, I think it was. I think he was coming back from that when you when you uh, when you met him, and. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, he was supposed to go to the World Cup in um, in South Africa, and his doctors begged him not to go, and at the last minute he decided not to, and everybody breathed a sigh of relief because he just does what he feels like doing. <laughs> yeah, and, well, yeah. And it worked out well because, it, you know, Italy obviously didn't go so well last time for them. But, you know, just a quick story about my dad. I mean, see, you know, where the apple doesn't fall terribly too far from the tree in, in certain ways – um, you know, my wedding day um, it happened during the World Cup in '86, and my father is sitting there at my wedding in like the third row with a little television set, <laughs> watching the Italy Bulgaria game. <laughs> he literally was. Now, I at least, you know, we have a great wedding video of me and me and the guys in the wedding. You know, I'm not going to like auto racing, but we're sitting in my uncle's house watching the Indy 500. And they, I still remember the Padres Phillies game. I think Charles Hudson threw a one hitter that day and beat the beat the Padres. And it's like at 45 minutes before the wedding, and they show the the women, my wife, and all the women, and they're you know all excited and ready to go and all that. And all the guys were not even dressed. We're just sitting there drinking beer, watching watching sporting events we really don't care about. <laughs> my dad, you know, he he went to the World Cup and um he, he went to several World Cups, and I think five or six in a row. And, um, you know, his biggest thrill probably in his life was watching, um, he went to, Italy wound up losing in the finals to Brazil in, uh, in LA, I think it was. Um, and then he, uh, you know, had saw the Pavarotti concert the night before. I mean, it's just, you know, he just ups and does whatever he wants. And a lot of, I guess, in a sense, a lot of times that's gotten him into trouble in his life. But he kind of, he's always been kind of a live for the moment kind of guy. 
um, you know, and, and, and then my mom's marriage didn't last terribly long, and I wound up with my mom, and rightfully so, and thank God for that in a lot of ways. But I do respect my dad's live-for-the-moment um, ethos, which served him very well. Well, yeah, he was, uh, I remember upon uh, meeting him, I, you know, uh, he related to me that he was from Torino, and uh, I think, you know, I exhausted my own Italian uh, within a minute or so, if that long. But I did ask him, of course, whether he was uh, a Juventus fan. This is, of course, uh, huh. the big, famous, uh, mo- you know, the big wealthy club owned by the Agnelli family uh, from Torino, or if he was uh, FC Torino. And uh, I think I didn't even finish the question because I said, are you Juventus? At which point um, he he spat on the ground. Um, yeah, at, at, at which point I'm, I'm, I'm lucky for you that he continued to talk to you and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and become yeah. some sort of altercation. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but he was uh, – yeah, that was very spirited. He also was – I remember seeing him the next day. He was actually at Mariner's Camp, and he had the pleasure then of meeting uh, Alex Liddy's family. Yes. Um, and he was nuts. Uh, he was going nuts over that. But I'm curious – of course, uh, Liddy, uh, Liddy left the Mariners, so um, uh, this would have uh, maybe decreased your father's interest. But is your so is your father a Royals fan now? Perhaps because of uh, Martin Martin Gasparini is is uh, what it's occurring to me. <laughs> well, you know, my dad, he, my dad came, was coming to visit me. Um, I don't know if it was that spring or the, the following spring. It was probably that same spring we're talking about down in Arizona. And, um, you know, he, he knew we had Liddy and, you know, he knew the significance of the Italian born player. And, you know, m- my dad is, you know, f- you know, fervent supporter of all things Italian. And, um, you know, I was going to pick the day I picked up my dad at the airport. I'd left from the game that Liddy had hit a grand slam in. And I'm saying to myself, man, I just wish that my, my dad would have flown in a day earlier and he would have gotten to see this. He would have gone crazy. Well, don't you know it? He hits another grand slam the next day, <laughs> and at that point, I was thankful that my dad was not there the day before, or else, you know, the scene that happened on that second day to have happened twice. You know, I, you know, I always tell my dad, you know, I work for the team. You need to keep it, you know, cheer, do what you do, but you know, you need to keep it, you know, within reason. And he tries. He really tries. <laughs> but when it comes to Alex Liddy, I mean, Alex Liddy is, is, is everything in my dad's eyes. And he, you know, followed him very closely. You know, he knew when we, um, you know, when he left the organization. And, you know, he, you know, he, I was having issues with the organization at that point anyway. My dad never lost sight of what was going on with Alex Liddy. And, you know, hopefully it, uh, it, it all works out for Alex. He's a really talented guy, and he's he's still very young. And it's just you know a lot of times those those power guys they just have to learn to manage those other, the rest of the at bats when uh, when their holes are exploited, and they have to you know maybe taper their approach a little bit, um, you know to uh, you know to get rid of some of those negative at bats. And you know some guys get through it, and some guys don't. And you know with, all, with nothing but the best for Alex to to get where he wants to be. Yeah, I mean, not to dwell on baseball too much, but uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, with regard to European scouting uh, and European talent at this point, do, do you have a sense, is there, is there an evolution to it at, the, at this point, or, I mean, is it fairly static, or wh- where is it at right now? Ah, you know, it's, the hit rate has been pretty low, I guess. I mean, there's more and more baseball being played. Now, a lot of it is Americans overseas, et cetera. We drafted a kid named uh, Kevin Cohos, 
who was an American kid who was uh, on an army base in, in Germany um, a couple years back, and you know he, he's you know had some hasn't had a lot of success yet with the Mariners, but he's just a talented athlete. Um, so you know every you know not every year, but every couple years there's a guy or guys, and you know when you're talking only a, a guy or a couple guys every couple of years, the you know your hit rate to get into the big leagues it, it, it doesn't happen all the time. Now, the kid Kepler. In the in the Minnesota organization, Max Kepler, um, you know he's got into full season ball last year. I'm pretty sure he was either a teenager or just turned 20, and he looks like he could be the next one. Um, you know that, that that gets to the big league and and hopefully sticks. Um, so you know I don't I don't see it becoming you know the next you know Latin America or anything like that. But there are there are pockets in every country, and you know there. There are international tournaments, and they're heavily scouted, not by every club, but by, by a lot of clubs. And, and the Mariners have always been a believer in, in, uh, in finding players wherever you can, you know, South Africa, Australia, you know, Europe. It doesn't matter. You know, it, there's been a couple African players in the past. Brazil's becoming kind of interesting. So, you know, you don't, you don't want to leave any stone unturned. But at this point, I can't. I can't say that Europe is is the next big thing. Holland is a big success story. I mean, there's, you know, God, you know, God rest God, Greg Holman, you know, we had with the Mariners. I mean, you know, he had such a bright future and had had cracked up to the big leagues and just snuck in there and had done some things. He did some eye opening things. But he, you know, not like Liddy, he was a guy with big power and big holes. Um, but he was getting there, and you know, unfortunately, we'll never find out, you know, how it would have turned out for Greg Holman. Yeah, it seems as though, well, you know, you hear this said with regard to, even to uh, American-born players, you know, maybe if they split time between baseball or football, um, you might say, uh, oh, he's, you know, he's not developed, he's not quite as developed as he's going to be because he, uh, you know, because he was playing a second sport and maybe his, uh, you know, maybe his curve, uh, his development curve in the future is going to look a little bit different, be a little bit steeper. Than, than a guy who's played, you know, baseball exclusively. Um, I, I wonder, to what degree does that apply, so far as you know, to to European ball at this point? I mean, because you know, the, there's there must right. be the the, the uh, variation, the distribution, I should say, of talent must be a lot wider than you're going to find in other areas. Well, you know what, I you know, I've had lots of conversations with colleagues about things like this over the years. Um, you know, multi sport athletes, et cetera. Um, it, I like three, the three, four sport athlete. You work different muscle groups. You, you, you know, a lot of times you're, the, the baseball star might be the grinding power forward in basketball, and you get to really gauge their hunger in a role like that that you would never ever be able to see them in, 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 on the baseball field because it comes so easily to them. Um, you know, I've seen players. You know, Mark Rogers was the first round pick with the, with the with the Brewers. And, you know, great hockey player. Um, I remember Matt Antonelli, who, um, you know, was in the big leagues for a little while, first-round pick, I believe, with the Padres. You know, he was an amazing hockey player. I mean, I, he must have played 50 minutes of the 60-minute game. He was on the penalty kill. He was on the, um, you know, on, on the power play. He just didn't come off the ice. Um, and you apply it to a European player. I know every time I watch uh, Rafael Nadal play tennis, I, I find myself thinking, my God, what a baseball player this guy could have been. He's left-handed. He would have been a left-handed hitter. Look at the speed. Look at the quickness. Look at the power. Just the, the wrists. 
the endurance. Uh, you know, if he was an American kid or if he had been a Spanish kid focused on baseball, even secondarily, I, I just can't imagine, um, you know, what kind of baseball player he could have been. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes you watch a second baseman make a charge play and a slowly hit ball, and, you know, he picks it up, transfers it from his glove to his bare hand, and it, it seems like it takes forever. And if you watch a lot of soccer, you could you could picture somebody who really knew how to use their feet just tipping it over to first base with their foot in, <laughs> in a fraction of the time. Now, I know that's a way out there kind of thing, but, you know, we again, how big is the world? We, we, here in America, we don't look at we every every sport around here is based on our, using our hands to a dramatic extent. Whereas the rest of the world, the most popular sport, you can't use your hands. Um, so if you really just remove all your your filters and, and all that, you know, you, there's if, if you get a really truly good athlete, the hardest part is teaching them how to hit. hit hitting a baseball is so foreign from just about anything you do in any other sport. There's so many muscle groups, so much, you know, brain activity that's going on and recognition that has to take place in in less than an instant. And I guess that's the hard part when you're talking about, you know, Europe, Africa, places where there just isn't a lot of baseball played. Yeah, you might have that raw, unfettered athleticism, maybe more so than you do here in, in the United States with some players. But how are you going to teach them how to hit if they haven't been doing it their whole life? I mean, we had a kid named Kelly at Sam's in the, in the Mariners organization. And uh, he's still kicking around. He was, he, he was in Triple A last year with, uh, briefly with the Padres. And he, he's just this big, strong kid who just swings and misses. He just, you could tell he didn't play this game when he was a young kid because he sees the ball, he tries to hit the ball. And he never walks, he strikes out a ton. But when he hits it, it's magical. And he's st- that's what we kept him around. He was in A ball as a 25, almost 26 year old. He snuck up to double A for a little bit, and you just don't, you never want to release the guy because of just how he impacts the baseball. But there's so much more to hitting than impacting the baseball. And when you weren't haven't been doing it for your whole life and having tons and tons of reps, it's just not a natural athletic endeavor. It's it's something you just don't roll out of bed one day and do. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, so it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I've I've sort of thought about this in terms of being able to assess the, uh, and I'm you know I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but able to assess the uh, the offensive skills of a player. And I, I, there's obviously interaction between the ability to recognize a pitch and then just the sort of you know the the mechanics uh, um, required to drive a ball. But it's interesting that you mentioned something like. Um, Rafael Nadal in tennis, because you would assume, you would assume Nadal is a player who um, would be able to recognize uh, strikes from balls, just given. The, I mean, if you can return any, you know, if you can return most of the serves, most of the ground strokes in the highest levels of professional tennis, you have to assume there's a there's a crazy amount of uh, hand-eye coordination going on there, and you assume yep. you can make contact. But I guess the question is, teaching. Teaching someone to drive it, whereas you yeah. know, you know, we've, uh, for example, there's another player like, you know, he's American-born, but Mark Trumbo, uh, who mm-hmm. was just, of course, traded for by the Arizona Diamondbacks. You have a situation where his power on contact is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question, of course, comes with uh, 
with uh, making contact all the time and and swinging at the right pitches because you know just things like uh, you know woba on contact outside of the strike zone relative to inside the strike zone is a lot lower. Yeah, and I'm actually going to have an, an article on Fangraphs later today about about that type of player and, and focusing on Trumbo to some extent. Um, and you know it. Yes, he impacts the baseball. I mean, there there are only a handful of players in baseball you could probably say who hit the ball harder than he does. But you know, I guess one way I would look at it is you know, and since you know we're both Italian, I'll use the concept of a pizza. Yeah, let's I mean, do let, it. Let's say a, a pizza is you know represents the whole of uh, Mark Trumbo's plate appearances, um, and out of that whole, you're going to have good things and bad things. Well, when you take 30% of that pie away and put it on the bad side and have to start from there, in 30% being strikeout rate, give or take, you have an incredible amount of work that needs to be done to become a productive player. Um, then you only take, say, 6 or 7% and put it on the good side, and that's the walk rate. And now you've got, you know, a little more than a half the pie that you have to make all of your offensive production come from. Now, Chris Davis last year showed that it can be done. Um, he struck out way more than, I mean, he got a fairly significantly higher rate than Mark Trumbo did. And he walked at a somewhat higher rate than Mark Trumbo did. But I think almost a quarter of the balls that Chris Davis put in play were hard fly ball contact. And... That's where the homers come from. That's where the doubles come from. That's where not a lot of outs come from. Some outs come from it, but that's where, I mean, his hard fly ball rate is double what Trumbo's was last year. So if Mark Trumbo wants to become Chris Davis, that's the path. He's going to have to double, you know, the the percentage of batted balls that are what, what I would classify as hard fly balls. That's hard to do, and that's hard to do without you know, pressuring the other parts of your game. If, is he going to strike out more? Is he going to walk less because he has to hit more hard fly balls? It's just like a, such a precarious path that a player has to walk when they have no margin for error. Chris Davis, as great a year as he had last year, there's a ton of risk in Chris Davis. I mean, I mean Adam Dunn, for years and years, cruised along as, you know, high strikeout, high walk, extreme hard fly ball, high hard fly ball guy. And when he became just an ordinary hard fly ball guy with an even higher strikeout rate, he hit about a buck fifty one year. So Miguel Cabrera, on the other hand, you know, I'm cheating using the best hitter in the game. Yeah, right. Yeah. He he strikes out less than than, than the league average. He walks way more than the league average. He hits more hard fly balls than the league average. He hits a hot, more line drives than the league average. You know. If he falters on any one of those fronts, he's got so many other things to pick him up and keep him near, near the top, if not at the top. Whereas, as soon as Chris Davis stops hitting a quarter of every batted ball into the stratosphere, Chris Davis is going to be what Chris Davis used to be again. I mean, Jose Bautista, I think, is a similarly, similarly risk, you know, risky player. You know, he, he, he hits the tar out of the ball. But he strike, he, he, his strikeout rate isn't as bad as it used to be. He's always been a very high pop-up guy. Pop-ups are, are waste of at-bats. Um, but if all of a sudden he's less of a pop-up guy, does he lose some of his, some of his uh, home run power? So it's you know a continual give and take. But 
If you already have a huge chunk of the pie on the bad side, you have no margin for error what you're doing with the rest of the pie. And that's what the players like Mark Trumbo, I mean, Miguel Olivo is an extreme example. Miguel Olivo would strike out about 30% of the time and he'd walk about 3% of the time. You can't make a video game player to succeed with the rest of the bats when you have a ratio like that. You can't do it. I don't care if you're hitting, if, if, if you have, uh, if you're hitting the ball, if you have Chris Davis's hard fly ball rate, you're, you're not going to be good enough. Maybe even as a catcher. You're not going to get your own base percentage. It's going to be in the Aaron Sebier range. And your slugging percentage will, will be, you know, decent, decent, you know, maybe a little bit above league average and your, you know, your, um, your counting stats might be okay, but you're not going to be giving your team any real offensive value. And then you look at a guy like Trumbo, who's really not, doesn't have a lot of defensive value anyway, and they're doing the Mike Morse thing and putting him in the outfield, which is, you know, conceivably going to make things even worse. So with, so, a, with a player like Chris Davis, though, you know, you look back on it now, you, you know, you look, at, you look at his 2013 season, and then you look back and you say, well, the signs, the signs for this sort of player were there. You know, they weren't, they weren't glaring, but, but there were indications that he could hit the ball hard. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, like he didn't really strike out that much less, if at all. Uh, he did walk a little bit more and, and, you know, p- potentially the, the added walks are a result of his, um, his plate discipline improving or perhaps they're just a function of, uh, pitchers seeing the home run totals and staying away from him more. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, well, we'll give that article to Jeff Sullivan. He can handle it. <laughs> but, um, but I guess the point is, you know, and this is where, um, the Orioles talent evaluators can, whether they're going to or not, but they can take some credit. You know, how do you say, how do you say this is the guy where it's likely to happen and this other guy isn't the guy? Or is it always just going to be a question of probabilities, at least for what we know of, of prospects at this point? Or, you know, not even prospects in the case of Chris Davis. At least we know of youngish players. Well, you don't you don't give up on them, I guess, is, is one thing I would say. But that doesn't mean you necessarily go out and give up two starting pitchers for them either or give up substantial value. Like, I, for me... I, you know, I understand what Arizona's trying to do, but I don't necessarily agree with it, acquiring Trumbo. Um, I look at it from the Angels' perspective and I say, okay, we trade a guy who was, you know, despite all the power, maybe a league average offensive player, just a little bit better, who really doesn't have a defensive position, and we got two starting pitchers with tons, tons of control and a real area team need. And that makes sense to me. But, um, and I forget exactly where I'm going again. Well, we're, we're um, talking about the the idea of uh, of you know spiking like Chris Davis did, where you say right, all of a right. sudden you, he has that you accumulate guys. You don't necessarily give up on them, but you don't you, you don't uh, you know pay a premium for them either. It's nice to have a bunch of them around because one or two of them might figure it out, and it isn't just figure it out either. I mean, it, evaluating is one thing; player development is another big part of it. I mean, you can take, you know, both the traditional scouting tools and the traditional player development tools, you know, hitting mechanics, et cetera, and and add all kinds of analytics to it now, too. I mean, there's all kinds of tools out there. You know how hard you have to hit a ball. You know what what types of – you can track what types of pitches you hit and what what areas of the plate and how hard you hit them. And you could, you know, just train and train and train in batting practice 
you know, trying to handle certain types of pitches and, I mean, certain types of locations of pitches and just monitor players' progress over time. There's vision. There's visual skills. I mean, the simplest thing is how a player processes visual information. There's all kinds of drills and all kinds of programs that are out there for that. I mean, you know as well as I, I mean, we're not professional-level athletes, and your, your eyesight starts to deteriorate at a point in time, and, and you need visual correction. Well, we, we can get by with 2040, 2050 vision in what we do. A, profe- a major league hitter needs to, needs to have, you know, almost fighter pilot vision deal with what they have to deal with. And it isn't just the raw vision itself. It's how they use the, how they use the visual skills that they have. So there's so many levels to it. So with a player like, you know, a, I'm not saying Mark Trumbo specifically, but a Mark Trumbo family player, a Carlos Peguero, uh, to use a Mariner a player, um, you know, all kinds of players' names you could throw out there, or just the William O'Panias. Yeah, a lot of them. You're going to do everything you 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 try. You're going to try a million things, and you're not going to be able to get where you want to get. But if you can hit on that one player and find whatever that hook is, whether it be vision, whether it be some some way to pick up the, the spin better, um, something with weak contact is a big one. Mark Trumbo makes a lot of hard contact. He also makes a lot of weak contact, especially on the ground. If he can lay off that pitch, get deeper into the count and then get that pitch that he can drive, you know, that makes a huge difference. So there's so many facets, so many levels to it. But the bottom line is, for a low-on-base, high-slug-type player, it's a precarious road. But they've got the, it, it, I would much rather be a guy with a ton of power with the low-on-base percentage than a guy who doesn't hit the ball hard but has a good eye at the plate and will draw his walks through the minor leagues. You know, maybe that guy's got place in the big leagues as a as a contributor, as a you know, maybe if he's got a great glove, he can be a number eight, number nine hitter and just, you know, help you with help you in other ways besides with the bat. But the guy like Trumbo, he does have that allure of that star potential. And it's hard to give up on, but you don't want to overpay for it either. And I think in, yes, in yesterday's trade with, with the with the Diamondbacks, Angels, and White Sox, I do think the Diamondbacks overpaid for that allure. Right, right. But as you mentioned that too, it's like because you're talking about a difference. I mean, they're all physical abilities, physical talents, because eyesight, you know, is and uh, this sort of cognitive machinery of identifying pitches, you know, that's all physical technically, but it's it's physical in a different way than you know, actual, than strength, right? The sort of strength that allows you to home run. So, you know, if Mark Trumbo figures something out, or, you know, he's got he's got all this raw strength, if he figures something out, which, as you say, like, he translates some of that weak contact back, you know, into the sort of contact of which he's capable, then that's a huge player. Whereas, you know, on the other hand, you have someone like um, uh, Tommy, you know, uh, Tommy LaStella in the, in the Brave mm-hmm. system. Uh, you know, Listella is an interesting player, and he's become a little bit more interesting, partly through his own doings, partially because, you know, there's some questions as to what the, uh, you know, what Dan Ugla's future looks like at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But Tommy Listella is a player with, who appears to have excellent contact skills and an excellent eye, but not a lot of, not a lot of physicality, right? So his mm-hmm. ultimate ceiling is is. Uh, you know, is probably lower than even Trumbo's is at this point, despite the fact that we have a bunch of major league data on Trumbo. 
Yeah, and the interesting thing about guys like Lestelle, and, and, and I think with Trumbull, there's, you know, obviously the scouts versus stats interplay that's been, you know, hyped up over years, and it, it you know, really, it, it doesn't need to be that way. There are lots of teams that do both well, but scouts will love a Mark Trumbo, and they would not love a Tommy Lestella. Um, and I think what a good scout and what a good analyst does is try to understand what the other person sees in in the player we're talking about. Um, you know, Mark Trumbo, you can't discount the power. You can't overrate the power, but it's hard to find. And you want to maximize it and turn it into as much as you can. Tommy Lastella, again, we're not talking about a guy who's never even played in the majors yet. Maybe he may never he may never do, but I think at this point he has enough of a track record built up where a good scout has to say, how does this guy done it? What it, what makes this guy what he's done to this point? Why is he overachieved at every level? I can remember players like um, you know Dustin Pedroia. There's a lot of controversy when the Red Sox took Dustin Pedroia um, as high as they did. Uh, well, he had, Dustin Pedroia had great eyesight. You know, we eye tests. You know, both in Milwaukee and Seattle, the places that I was, the places I've been, and uh, Dustin Pedroia's eye scores were were off the charts. Um, and that's again, that's not just you know vision; it's how he uses his vision, his visual skills. Um, you know, Jared Weaver, and this is a, to- a totally different one. But if you go out and, you, and you've never sca- you go out and see Jared Weaver as an amateur. And you compare them to the other guys who were in the draft in that year or years around that year, Verlanders, et cetera. And you go see Jared Weaver and you put a radar gun on him, and he's 89 to 91. And, you know, his, his secondary pitchers are solid, but, you know, Verlander's curve's way better, and, you know, they're, they're guys with better change-ups. So you grade him out across the board, and your OFP in Jared Weaver isn't really high. But then you look at his numbers and you say, why is this guy's numbers arguably the best of any college pitcher ever, right in that discussion, and then, but if and if you look at him and you watch him, you keep noticing the balls popped up to the third baseman again. The balls popped up on the infield again. That's a that's a skill. That's a skill that isn't a traditional box score kind of thing. If you can get people to hit the ball straight up in the air, it's damn near as good as a strikeout. And Jared Weaver, especially in the early stage of his of, of his career. He didn't grade out stuff-wise anywhere near the other great pitchers in the game. But he was able to, I think it was like a 15% pop-up rate that he was running consistently, you know, as an amateur and then, early, you know, run up through the minors. So there's a lot. Nobody has all the answers. But if, if scouts really believe in a player, there's a reason for it. And the analytically, the analytically oriented people need to hear where the scouts are coming from and if the analyst sees something, the scouts need to, sit, to take a step back and, 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 and try to hear where the, the analysts are coming from. And good organizations are able to put two together and, you know, and move forward using every tool available to them. All right. Hey, well, listen, I don't want to take up uh, your entire day. So well, let's, uh, let's, say, let's say that you've f- fulfilled your obligation, at least for this particular edition of the podcast. The uh, the the Italian American French podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Well, I don't know if that's going to fit on one line on the site, so I I have to come up with something potentially more plain than that. But uh, yeah, but uh, I you know I really appreciate uh, uh, you talking, Tony, and uh, uh, you know sharing on uh, 
some matters that are irreverent and I guess other matters that I don't know if they're reverent, but, uh, you know, more, uh, um, more, uh, mm. I'm, I'm going to use a, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use a thesaurus in the future. I'm going to come <laughs> back here. And I'm going to, I'm going to, in whatever word I'm looking for, I'm going to use it, but it's more fraught, I guess. Uh, I'm more fraught with a, uh, with a number of types of feelings. Well, and I don't think we created any international incidents, so I think we're good. I think we're okay. Yeah. Well, why don't you stick around for a second? But uh, for the purposes of the podcast, I'll say uh, I'll say thank you, Tony Blangino. All right, and thank you, Carson Stoli. Yeah, that's uh, Tony Blangino, uh, currently a contributor to, to Fangraphs.com, to the electronic pages of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stoli, and this is Fangraphs Audio.